It's episode 91 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Bill Burnett. He's the executive director of the design program at Stanford University and the author of the new book, Designing Your Work Life. We're going to talk about applying our craft as designers to the problem of our own careers. Bill, thanks so much for being on the program. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, of course. I'm just, I'm thrilled you're here. Uh, I have so many questions for you, but I, I just wanted to start a little bit talking about your previous book uh, called Designing Your Life uh, and how, I guess that was uh, four, five, maybe six years ago now? Yeah, it was uh, 2016. Yeah, that came, I found that book um, at a time when I was sort of, kind of finishing my time. I was a vice president of design at Adobe. I had a huge team. Uh, you know, a th- it's interesting in your new book, the difference between the, that you make between authority and influence. And I was like, huh, yeah, yeah I remember like having <laughs> a lot of authority and wondering why don't I have any influence? Um, but I also remember being just very, very tired. And uh, I knew that like, I wasn't going to stay at Adobe. I'm going to change things. But the insanity of my day-to-day corporate job, it just kept me like, you know, I was constantly planning and not taking any action. Uh, and your book, like, I remember seeing it going like, oh, designing your life. Well, that would speak to me as a designer. And it was really this sort of, you know, physician heal thyself moment when I was uh-huh. like, oh, my God, <laughs> like everything that I just preach to people all day long at work, well, I could just do that to my own life. And, um, yeah. you know, like reframing and prototyping and iteration and collaboration, like, oh, my God, I should just. I should, you know, I should just like do that, do that for myself. And it was, it was that weird, like, uh, uh almost embarrassing insight, you know, like it was right in front of me the whole time. Uh, and then it just, I needed somebody to kind of shake me and, and say like, Hey, wake up. And so thank you. Well, you know, my, my, my favorite professor at Stanford when I was there was a guy named Matt Kahn. And he always said, use design to design, you know, like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you know, the tools. Um, but I think, yeah, and the book was written for people who don't know design and, and design thinking. But um, I think if you are an experienced designer, you kind of recognize yourself in the process. So I'm glad it was. I'm glad it was helpful. It was. It was helpful. I, I, I really did appreciate it. You are at Stanford University in the design program. I want to take just a little bit, like, you know, sort of what brought you on the educational path, and and I'm sure, like, one of the things I'm constantly interested in is just how are we equipping the next generation of designers. So can we, let's start there. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, I um, I graduated from the program back in, uh, in the 80s, and I had a long career in Silicon Valley. I worked at Apple for seven years. I did uh, three startups, uh, and I eventually had my own consulting firm doing, you know, engineering design and design consulting. We were called uh, D2M, Design to Manufacturing, and we had an office in Silicon Valley and an office in Hong Kong. But even after I got, when I got out of school, um, uh I had taken, uh, I had a, jo- a job in between my undergrad and grads where I was working at Kenner Toys in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm. And I was designing Star Wars toys, which was <laughs> awesome. Um, but I also took a bunch of classes at the University of Cincinnati's uh, industrial design program. So I was pretty good at drawing. And they, they invited me back to run uh, the drawing seminar. We have a class to, to teach the students drawing. And then, you know, and I did that part time. And then I was, while I was working, and then I ended up teaching the capstone class for a bunch of years. Anyway, after. 24 years of one-year appointments for a part-time lecturer. Um, in 2006, David Kelly called me up because he was getting the, the D-School started. You know, David is the founder of IDEO and right. D-School, and he's our, he's our famous guy. He called me up and he said, hey, listen, we're getting this D-School going, and I'm super busy, and I need someone, I need some help with the program. I'll invent a position. We'll call it executive director. Do you want it? And I was like, well, you know, gee, at half my salary, uh, and, uh, you know, and I have to get rid of my business and blah, 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 blah. But eventually I decided it was a great idea. Uh, cause I enjoyed, I enjoyed my part-time teaching so much that I thought, you know, coming in and helping kind of rebuild the program and the D school was getting going and design was getting pretty excited, exciting. So, you know, we've spent the last, that was 2006, so what, almost 14 years. We've spent the last three or four, we've spent the last the first five years, really reinventing the undergraduate program, because there's so much more going on now. I mean, digital design and UI UX stuff. And, um, you know, in the old days, we called it product design because it was really just products. But now products, services, experiences, digital stuff. So, sure. you know, we're, we're, we're packing a lot more into the undergraduate curriculum than we did before. 
And, uh, and of course, the undergrads are great because they, you know, they, at Stanford, you just get into Stanford. You don't, you don't have to pick a major till you're a junior. Mm. But the kids find the, the kids find product design because they want to do something technical, but they also want to do something creative. We're we're an unusual program for design programs. We're in the school of engineering, and it is an engineering degree. Yeah. Uh, a lot of design programs are more in the art and architecture department, but. Um, but we've always been a little bit of a hybrid of engineering and art and, you know, some psychology, some anthropology. So we, we updated that program. And then about five, five years ago now, we, we, st- we canceled our master's program, which had been going on for, you know, since the, since the 60s. But we wanted, to, we wanted to rebuild that from the ground up. And we had a couple of new professors and we were starting to reinvigorate, you know, our research agenda. So we have a research lab. Now, Sean Fulmer has a lab where he's doing these crazy robots and and the sort of working at the intersection of the physical and the digital world. And we rebooted the graduate program, brought in a whole new bunch of instructors, and we call it uh, Design Impact. And we picked, we started to pick some themes. You know, the, the UN has the stri- uh, strategic or sustainable, dis- uh, uh, sustainable something goals, um, SDG, sustainable something design g- goals. And, and the university has adopted 10 of those. And we picked uh, energy and healthcare as two big themes to work on, and now we're going to probably step back and, and really open it up to all of the all the themes. And we wanted the pro- the graduate program to be to really be focused on what the students want to want to do now. They want to work on, you know, the healthcare system and making that better. They want to work on global climate and and energy and sustainability. They want to work on you know the new urban cities and mobility. So you know we we just keep. You know, the tools keep changing, the, the ability to design uh, and, and design rapidly keeps changing with new rapid prototyping tools and new um, new platforms. You know, gosh, I mean, I'm a dinosaur. When I got out of school, we were still on drafting boards. And, and now you can, you know, whip something up on your on your Mac or even your, your iPad and have it 3D printed and, and, and built, you know, before you know it. So it's 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 interesting that, you know, even though the tools keep changing. And making the workflows different, underlying stuff, you know, human-centered design, focus on the human equation, understand the latent needs. Users can't tell you what they want, but they, you can, by observation and interviewing and ethnographic techniques, you can sort of, you can really kind of tease out what the, what the big problem is and, yeah. and, and therefore match, you know, uh, sort of technologies to the user's experience or the user's need. So much of Silicon Valley is the other way around. Hey, look at this cool technology <laughs> I've got, and and then you know, and and then they started. They got a bunch of venture money. They started companies, and they can't quote find a market. They can't pivot to a market fit. Well, that's just that's just you know silly language for it. You build something nobody wants. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know you're that's why you know I'm, I'm, I assume that's why you're in a venture firm is to, to up you know it's, it's a it's a pure ROI calculation. If we can get the definition of the product right and really get something that's delightful, not just meets the need, but is amazing, delightful, you know, extraordinary. You know, at Apple, um, Steve's Steve's uh, Steve's criteria was insanely great. You know, put that on a spec sheet. It has to be right. insanely great. But designers can 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 create that that magical thing that is you know new to the world. And then startups have such a better opportunity to execute and to perform, you know, and to and to really grow a market. Because if you're a startup and you're not doing something new to the world or something that delights your customers, forget it. You're never you're never going to make it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's been our thesis, and and the reason I took the job was was that um, that very that very premise of. Um, Reducing the risk in the product market fit, to use the lingo. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. And now, so now you are training these designers to go out in the world right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And so there must be a focus on uh, sending them into startups uh, or, or have that be part of their ambition uh, and, and reason for, for <laughs> taking the program. Yeah. In some, in, in some cases, I think there's just too much startups going on on campus. I always tell my students, why well, take it? Finish school. It's school's so much fun. What do you want to start a company for? But they do, you know. Um, one of maybe one of our most recently famous ones is uh, uh, one of my advisees came in my office. I think probably six years ago now, and he said, um, hey, "Everybody, you know, Instagram's really popular. Everybody's trying to make pictures permanent on the internet. What if we made them disappear?" <laughs> and I said, "Ian, why would you want pictures to disappear? That's a stupid idea." And that's that's um, that's Ian's, uh, Evan, Evan 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 Spiegel. Evan. 
Yeah. And that's uh yeah, and that's Snapchat. And he <laughs> likes to tell that story and make fun of me. Um, we're 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 still good friends and uh, in fact his company, you know, does some some work with us at Stanford. You know, so we have the, we have the entrepreneurial kids. Another one of my students started a company that just got, just got bought. Um, uh, it's it's I think it's it's the it's called Glyph. It's the company that does the um, GIF keyboards, and uh-huh. that it just got by got by bought by Google for four hundred million. So yeah, there's a little bit of startup mania around. Um, now they all want to be you know Evan, but I, I tell them you know nine out of ten nine out of ten times you're just going to be a guy who worked really hard or a gal who worked really hard and nothing happened. Um, but they all think they're in the one. So that's, that's cool. But they, you know, a lot of times the students also will go work at startups that are a little more mature, you know, they're series A, series B, they're up and running. They've got a product because they can get more responsibility right away, yeah. you know, and they really, and they really want to dive in and they want to make a contribution, but you know, a good, a good, uh, well, everything's changed. I remember sitting with a bunch of my students in December and saying, guys, you're, you're so lucky you're graduating into the best job market I have ever seen in the Valley. Apple's booming, Facebook's booming, Google's booming, you know, Instagram's, everybody's, all the big companies are scaling and the startups, there's so much money flowing into startups that there's opportunity everywhere. And we're something like 30,000 engineers and designers short in the Valley. That was in December. Now, <laughs> now things are a little different now. I mean, I had some students who had awesome job offers at uh, Airbnb and, and Lyft and, and Uber. And of course, those have all gone away. Um, although the other company, you know, Apple's hiring, you know, yeah. lots of companies are hiring. So it's, it's just lumpy right now. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting sort of redistribution, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, the other thing that I, I really love about this generation of students is they're, they're not chasing money. They want to do something that's, that's interesting and they want to do something that's important. So they are very interested in sustainability. They are very interested and in, they'll, they'll go work in a nonprofit. They'll go do teach for America, you know, to get kids excited, excited about Learning design in a rural school in Tennessee or something, they they are they really are about having an impact and and you see it now of course with the political stuff and, and other things that um, they're they're pretty activated around solving big problems and climate change is a big problem and design can really help you know uh, the adoption of new technologies to to clean up the environment. We're looking pretty hard at our curriculum now around, uh, you know, diversity, inclusion, you know, where, where, where in our process of going out into communities and trying to understand needs, do we have un, un, you know, unseen biases? And how can we diversify our design teams to make sure that one of the principles of design thinking is radical collaboration, as right. you mentioned? Well, it's not radical collaboration if everybody in the room looks the same, right? So we're, we're going we're gonna to work really hard on that because the students are demanding it. But I, I, you know, the students go to big companies, small companies, they start companies, they go to work as teachers, they go to work um, in nonprofits. Um, there's a couple of really great um, nonprofits working in the education space, uh, and, you know, that are in the Valley that, that kids love to work for. So I'm, I'm really impressed with this generation's, you know, willingness to work hard on stuff they think matters and not necessarily just chase the you know, hey, I got this cool job at, you know, McKinsey Design or something. That's interesting. I've, you know, I've always used kind of a framework for looking at new opportunities uh, in my own life uh, by distinguishing between job, career, and vocation, right? Like, uh-huh. the like, is this an interesting job? Like, do I want to work at this company? And are these good people? And then, like, does it fit into an overall narrative, a career, like, do the pieces right. all kind of go along in this in a way that makes sense, at least to me? Right. Uh, and then the vocation, which really, you know, comes from the, you know, calling, like the, yeah. the meaning of the work, the purpose, the overall. And it sounds like uh, generationally, we're seeing more emphasis on calling and vocation. I think so. You know, and I think I think it's appropriate. Um, and, um, you know, the, the students at Stanford are... Um, you know, 70% of my students are on financial aid. There's hardly anybody's paying list price. Um, I got lots of kids that are first gen to college, first person in their family to go to college. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, they, they are in a sort of a pretty privileged space. And they realize that, you know, if they're going to get this kind of an education, they need to do something good with it. Um, it's not, not so much that that's a burden, but that it matches the call, you know, the idea of a calling. Now, you know, from our book that we're kind of against this, what's your passion thing? Because mm-hmm. passion... Uh, passion in all of uh, you know uh, Dave and I who wrote the book and 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 when we're teaching 
for teaching at Stanford. Stanford's a research institute. You can't just make stuff up. You can't say, oh, passion doesn't count. You know, you, you got you to have it based on something. <laughs> and as a colleague of ours is a wonderful researcher over at the Center for the Study of Adolescence. He, he studies, you know, this question of uh, how do people form from their adolescent self to their adult self and, you know, what are the processes and what's, what's, where, what, makes it, what makes it work. And in his studies, less than 20% of the people, um, you know, sub 30, 30 years old, have any a single identifiable passion that organizes what they do or what their life is or what their calling might be. So eight out of 10 people are going, I don't know what this question means. Uh-huh. And and I hate a question that leaves eight out of 10 people, you know, kind of feeling like there must be something wrong with me. Because obviously, if you ask the question, I'm supposed to have one. Um, but But mostly what happens is, you know, you got to work a while before you discover your calling. You got to try some stuff. You got to uh-huh. prototype your way forward before you really figure out. You know, I'm in. I'm full, full, full bore into education now and writing books and doing things that I never thought I would. None of this was ever, you know, on a on a plan for Bill's career. But if I look, if I look in in retrospect, I always like you said. I always worked for interesting people on interesting teams. I always worked for people I could learn something from. And I was always interested in teaching what I knew to the younger engineers or the people who were working for me when I became a manager or when I became a senior manager or as an entrepreneur. It was all about storytelling and, you know, trying to leave the campsite better than I found it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And 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 then and so it doesn't surprise me in retrospect. I end up a professor at Stanford, an adjunct professor, by the way, make, make sure we put the adjunct in front of professor because the real professors, the folks who have tenure and who do research and work their buns off, you know, for that title deserve recognition that that's special. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm just a hacker they bring in cause I like to teach. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, in retrospect, it would have been, um, you know, storytelling is one of the, you know, it's one of the skill sets of a designer. If you, you, it's not enough to just come up with a good idea. If you can't explain how the idea works in the world and in the future that you're imagining this, this idea makes better, you're not going to have any traction. You're not going to, you're not going to have the influence you want to have in organizations. So um, I think people are more calling focused. I think that they, they are more purpose focused but you know when we wrote the first book and the second book designing your work life which was about how because so many people don't like their jobs 68 percent of americans you know are disengaged from from their jobs according to gallup 85 percent of workers worldwide are disengaged don't like their jobs and i've always liked my job but but i was guided by this notion of you know what am i going to learn is it going to be an interesting team are these people going to be fun to work with and then overall will will i Will I be able to make a contribution here from what I've learned? And will I be able to leave something behind? And I think my students are motivated that way as well. And it's really, it's really fun to see. So, you know, then, then all you have to do is, you know, point them in the right direction and they'll just take off. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. I, the storytelling aspect of it has always been something I've found very effective when, when uh, deciding on a new opportunity, when you're you're you know in an interview process and you're saying to somebody like this is kind of my view of the world, I think that I can uh, accomplish many steps towards that view of the world at this place because you know our values align and we seem to see things pretty similarly, um, and that's a much different conversation than you know I have this many years of experience with these tools and this management and you know stuff like that well you know and i think the other the other thing and maybe it's a little bit of a bad rap about you know the the millennials and the gen z's is they move around a lot they move around jobs a lot you know i was i was taught you know oh you never you never leave a job you know uh, less than five years because you don't want to look like you're job hopping but um my students really think about jobs as projects this is an interesting Mm -hmm. project i'll work on it when the project is done they kind of look around and go what else is there to do am i still learning am i still growing in this one place i think that's partially also because companies have kind of backed out of the hey if 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 you work hard we'll keep you around forever you know the the social contract isn't there anymore and so um uh, i think most people in the modern workforce realize that they're responsible for their career and they've got to they've got to build the skills that they think will be useful in the future, and so and and you know and and one of the one of the themes of the new book was like okay well when the robots come and automation comes and everybody says no one's going to have a job, what's what's really going to happen, and what's what's 
true is nobody knows, but what's probably the most resilient approach to that is think like a designer. You're constantly designing the next job. And it's kind of exciting. Don't you, isn't it kind of exciting that we're, I, I bet you're doing stuff now. I'm certainly doing stuff now and using tools now that I could not have conceived oh. being in existence 20 years ago when I, or, or well, 40 years ago when I was coming out of school or, or 20 years ago, you know, uh, oh, yeah. at, at Apple. It, it's just the tools we've got now, the, the new jobs. If a student had come to me 15 years ago and said, I think I want to do product design, design and AI, I'd go, you can't do that. There's no such thing. And now, probably one of the hottest areas, you know, for us, and we're, when we're looking at, at adding this into the to the graduate program, is AI is becoming so so accessible, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many open AI platforms, and and the designers got to get in the game and start start designing this stuff. Otherwise, we're going to end up with biased AI and bad AI and you know surveillance AI. But if you get human centered designers in the mix, you know we can we can make the best use of, a, of what could be a phenomenal technology. So I think that if you want to be resilient in the future, it, whatever your job is, you're going to have to design the next engagement because that's what's, you know, the, the last thing we can automate is human creativity and the social emotional intelligence it takes to discover, you know, new things. Oh yeah, totally. Now hold on to that thought. I want to take a quick break and uh, tell you about uh, something from our friends at StackBit. Okay, so StackBit offers developers tools that enable inline content editing, live previews of content changes, sharing of real-time previews, and loads more on their Jamstack site. All of this supports the tools developers are already using and doesn't require code changes. That's why StackBit is a great way to Jamstack. That's a development architecture based on client-side JavaScript, reusable APIs, and pre-built markup. StackBit lets content editors make changes and preview how those changes look right on the page so they know when their changes will impact the page without needing to go through a whole publish and rebuild. Content editors can also share real-time previews of content changes, and StackBit works with all of your existing tools. That includes your static site generator, your headless CMS, or whatever deployment solutions you're using. Try StackBit's editing and collaboration features right now on their site builder. Uh, Go to stackbit.com, click the Try Now button, and create a Jamstack site in just a couple of minutes built using modern tools and services like Gatsby, Sanity, Netlify, and GitHub. Once again, create your site today in just minutes at stackbit.com. Our thanks to StackPit for their support of Presentable and all of Relay FM. All right, so I I, I do want to uh, kind of dig in a little bit on the new book. Um, I you know I mentioned the the first one, Designing Your Life, uh, and that was interesting. It was at a point in my career where I actually had to make a choice, and uh, and I realized I had the opportunity to make a choice. That you know that's kind of a privileged position to be in to be able to like this is a you know, quote unquote, good job that I have, but I want to go do something different. Um, and your new book seems to be a little more focused on uh, maybe starting with your current circumstances rather than heading yeah. off on a quest, you know? Yeah, it's, it, it is. And, 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 you know, it came from, um, you know, we were, Dave and I didn't know, we'd never written a book before, but we had a fantastic uh, agent, Doug Abrams, and he got us an amazing uh, publisher, Knopf, which is one of the big, big, you know, uh, publishers out in New York, and and we got the most wonderful editor, Vicki Wilson. And so the first book was quite an adventure for us, and we had no idea, you know, that it would be as successful as it was. But we're in our twenty, I think we just got to know we're in twenty sixth printing or something. Oh, congratulations! Uh, and we're in twenty two languages. I get I get a little tiny royalty check from Belarus <laughs> and from Vietnam. I mean, we're in Vietnamese, evidently. And so uh, Vicky called us up a, a couple of years ago and said, "Okay, I want another book. What do you got?" And we said, well, we've been thinking about it. And, you know, there's maybe a book on retirement, designing your retirement, because that's an, we've been working with a lot of people at that phase in their life. And they're kind of stuck. They don't they haven't had to think about what's next in a long time. The one flaw in this book, the, the Designing Life book, is it doesn't really deal with part that you don't really design by yourself. You design with a partner or, you know, uh, like a co-parent or something. You know, there's it's designing your life together would be another option. Uh, and then we and we said, and you know, we've been looking at the research, and people are just really unhappy at work. We can we got to fix that. She said, let's do the work book on work first, and then we'll do the book on retirement. But right now, work is topical because of the 
conversations about, you know, AI and robots and automation. And right. it was part of the, even part of the national campaign when Andrew Yang was saying, Hey, we gotta, we gotta, you know, have a income for everybody because nobody will have a job in the future. Um, so we said, well, let's, let's dive into that. And we got more and more and more interesting research. Um, I mentioned 68% of people are unhappy at work. Here's another, another really interesting one. 40 at any given time, 40% of the people in your office are looking for another job. They're literally <laughs> on their computers looking for another job while they're working for you. And my favorite one, uh, I, I've lost the, the citation for this, but I'll find it if I need to. Uh, my favorite one is that 25% of U.S. workers would give up their next raise if you would fire their boss. Literally, <laughs> they would pay you to fire their boss. <laughs> now, that's crazy, right? But it's people are just engaged, and it's and you know, as we got deeper and deeper into it, it's one part part of this because you know the workplace, the compact between us and the companies have kind of shattered. The companies aren't offering lifetime employment or security anymore, so everybody knows they're on their own. But it's also that you know that that, that when people are being managed, they're being managed about their job. And our research said you know, people people want to talk about their life with a job in it, not just the job. Mm-hmm. So the designing your life book was a, a good first one, but we also wanted to do something for people who, you know, were like, okay, I, I, I get the designing your life thing, but, um, you know, I'm I'm 35. We've got the two kids in the mortgage. How do I just make work work for me? How do I make it work better? And so we've got a bunch of different things in in this. And, you know, our first book was heavily on design and on positive psychology. You know, right. things like a good time journal and things like that. Again, we're research based. In this one, you know, we we also went and looked at some other research where people were talking about what is the sort of intrinsic motivations of humans. How, how humans are interesting in that we'll do things just because we're curious. We'll do things just to get better at something. We'll do things just so that we can hang out with other people, <laughs> and we'll do things to express ourselves. Right, and 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 actually, in the research, if you pay someone you pay them money to do something that they're intrinsically motivated to do. They do it more poorly. And the classic piece of research is you get two groups in and you say, Hey, let's solve this jigsaw puzzle. And one group, you just say, Hey, solve it as fast as you can. You know, you, and we'll tell you how, how fast your score compares to the other scores. And the other team, you say, I'll pay you 10 bucks to do this jigsaw puzzle. And in all the research, the people who do it just, just to win, just to do it totally outperform the people you pay. Yeah. So there's this this theory of intrinsic motivation. It's Edward Dietschy and some other psychologists. And it, what it but what it says is, hey, you don't need your boss's permission to get better at your job. That's competence. You don't need your boss's permission to express yourself. That's autonomy. And you don't need your boss's permission to work well with your coworkers or find people to work with that you enjoy. That's relatedness. So we call it the arc of your career: autonomy, relatedness, and competence. Yeah. Um, once you once you realize that you're in charge of that. You got a whole bunch of different ways you can redesign your job. And then we had four strategies for redesigning a job. You know, you can remodel it, you can relocate, you can, you know, reinvent. Um, and then we had some strategies for, you know, quitting. Well, like, like you said, you were at Adobe and you, you had accomplished a lot and it was great. And then it was time you weren't learning anything new and it was time to do something different. Uh, when I was at Apple, I had done 11 of the PowerBook computers. PowerBooks in those days were what we call the MacBook Pros. And uh, we're done 11. It was time to do 12. And I looked around and there was no way to go up. There was no way to go sideways. And I said, guys, 11's enough. <laughs> I got I got to find something else to do. So there's a there's a quitting well chapter because, you know, nobody just, you know, I'm burning bridges. You want to keep your networks working. So we just thought there was lots of stuff we could do to help people make work work better for them. And, and they, that it could be research-based and it could be, but it could be actionable. We're good at taking stuff that's kind of fuzzy, researchy, you know, conclusions and turning it into a an actionable thing because that's that's what designers do. We we make stuff. It's interesting. Um, right around the time that I uh, that I found your your first book, uh, your co-author Dave Evans uh, gave a talk to at, at True Ventures at one of our gatherings of all our founders. And talked uh-huh. about a lot of this, and he did this exercise with us, talking about you know the sort of take action, right? Um, right. Where he said, "Imagine that there's got to be something in your life that you're curious about right now that you would just like to know more about, or a problem you're trying to solve." He said, "I guarantee the answer is in this room 
and he got us to all stand up and he said, all right, go find your answer. It's talk to the person next to you and, if, and see if they know somebody or if, or if there's somebody across the room. And uh-huh. we, we all did this and it was remarkable. Like everybody got there, yeah. you know, we all like within a few minutes found somebody that could really help. Uh, and it was just a matter of asking. It's amazing. We, we, we live inside networks that are really powerful and yet we hardly ever access them. By the way, that, that exercise never fails. I did it in a class <laughs> once and we got all the kids up and they were like, and one, one person, you know, it was, you know, mid, you know, twenties and thirty somethings. And she's like, um, I want to, and she, and I said, who hasn't got an answer yet? And she had been sort of shy and hadn't talked to many people. She said, well, I've got one. I'm sure no one knows anything about it. I said, what's that? She goes, um, I want to know what it's like to be a doctor, uh, in the Navy. And somebody said, anybody know anything about somebody just raises their hand and say, my daughter is the flight surgeon on the USS enterprise. Would you like to meet her? (laughs) (laughs) So even, even a weird, obscure thing, we just live inside networks and, and, you know, ask, you know, get, David probably said the thing like, what's our model? Get curious, talk to people, then go try stuff, go call that person and have coffee with the flight surgeon on the enterprise. And then tell your story. Once you tell your story, hey, I had this interesting thing. You, you know, a curious person is a, is an attractive person, and a good storyteller is an attractive person. I think I got some. There was a piece of research I found that I loved. It was out of uh, England. Uh, somebody said um, that they posited that good storytellers um, were sexier because storytelling leads to uh, stronger relationships, which would lead to more babies. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, think about it, you know, you've ever, ever since we wandered out of caves and you're sitting around the rock and you're like, Hey, so, you know, so Jeff, how was your day? Well, you know, I was hunting, but I, we haven't actually invented, you know, a bow and arrow yet. So it didn't go very well. Like, <laughs> how was your day, Bill? Well, I was trying to make something happen. I think it's called fire, but I don't really know what the hell I'm doing. Um, you know, so, I mean, we, we, we tell stories. That's how we capture our experience. And those stories are in networks of people. So, and curiosity is the is the is the energy that's kind of intrinsic in all of us i mean some of us you know have kind of kept the curiosity beaten out of us maybe um or our we don't think we're as creative as we used to be because mm. you know nobody's asking us to be creative but it's in there that spark is in there and if you can just you know set the bar low try a few little prototypes a little few conversations uh, you can get it going and we are naturally curious beings uh, and it's it's one of the best parts of the human, you know, uh, uh, equation, the human being. Um, and uh, curious people are attractive. People like to talk to people who are curious. And they like to help each other. And that's why that networking thing always works. And you sort of frame that up as this is a potential way to navigate in uh, a fr- frustrating situations at work or a job where you're not feeling valued or, you know, sort of any other way of, of trying to get yourself unstuck uh, exactly. at the job that you're currently in. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and that, that you have more networks than you realize, that you do have to take the first step. You got to reach out. And that can be a little bit scary. Uh, and so, you know, we, we always say set the bar low. <laughs> Our method is set the bar low and clear it because I'm kind of an introvert and I don't like to talk to strangers. And But also, if you look at all the work on behavior change, and one of our colleagues uh, at Stanford, B.J. Fogg, just wrote a book called Tiny Habits. And if you haven't seen that, check that out. Mm. And he's got a whole methodology of how do you actually make changes that stick, that, you you know, you break an old habit, get rid of it, or start a new one and persist in it. And you do it with small steps. So. Um, you don't have to change your whole life. You don't have to do anything else. You just have to say, well, you know, here I am in finance and it's been fine, but I'm not that, I'm not that into it anymore. It's kind of, I do the same thing every day. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what they're doing. I've heard there's something about marketing analytics. I wonder what the heck that's all about. It sounds like there's some numbers in it. It says marketing, it says analytics. It's not finance. You know, is there anybody over there who'll have a cup of coffee with me? I'll buy the coffee. And go find somebody and say, hey, what's this? What's this marketing analytics thing? Oh, well, it's all tied to social media because we've got this amazing amount of data. Well, where's the data come from? You have this conversation. You realize, you know, a person with a finance background would probably be awesome at this. (laughs) I just need to learn a few new things. And it might give me a a new bunch of people to work with who are interesting. 
a whole bunch of new stuff to learn. So I'd be I'd be building my competency uh, and my relatedness, and um, I can make a contribution because I'm good with numbers. So you know the answers are all around you, but you do have to start the process. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, that's an ex- a real example of a guy who did a relocation. He went from finance to marketing because marketing, you know, is a number. He didn't realize that a lot of marketing, particularly social media marketing, is a numbers-driven game. Hmm. That's so interesting. Um, hold on to that thought. We're going to take a quick break, uh, and we'll be right back. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by the IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint. Hey, we're always looking for new podcasts to listen to, aren't we? I know I always am. Uh, always on the lookout for something that will help us do our jobs better, live a better life, or whatever. If you're looking for that sort of show to listen to, then the IntraZone is a bi-weekly podcast with conversations and interviews on how Microsoft SharePoint, OneDrive, and related tech can work for you. You get to hear from guest experts behind the scenes and out in the field so that you can see how SharePoint fits into your everyday work life and easily share and manage content knowledge, applications, all of that. So each show covers a bunch of segments like uh, news and announcement, a, f- a focus topic of the week, guest perspectives, uh, FAQs, all sorts of stuff, even upcoming events that are all being held virtually but that you can that you can attend to learn even more about this stuff. So if you have an idea, uh, just to give you uh, an idea of what to expect, uh, I want to tell you about some of the topics that might be interesting to you that were on previous episodes. They've discussed working from home, which I know is relevant to some of you right now, uh, and also figuring out intelligent intranet for your organization. And, uh, and you know, they did an episode recently on APIs and teamwork, and, and, and you should just try it all. Uh, I was listening to an episode uh, from one of their, where they interviewed one of their senior product marketing managers about Microsoft's kind of response to uh, COVID-19 and, and all the changes that have happened in business, uh, and how the customers, their customers have had to uh, adjust to remote work, figure out how to do more with less as, as things have scaled down or scaled up in some cases. It's a really interesting conversation. So go check out IntraZone, uh, pop it into your podcast player, and go to your podcast player and, and search for IntraZone to find out where, uh, where you can listen. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E. Uh, or just you know go to the show notes in this episode of Presentable, and, and I've got a link to it there. So, so check it out. Our thanks to the IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So I would love to talk a little bit about influence. One of the sort of constant themes, one of the pillars of this podcast, uh, is that the more influence designers can have in an organization, the more uh, impact that they can have on the decision making that that happens around the products that they're or services that their organization produce, the better that they can be. Right? The better, the more change we can have in the world, and um, and we see that played out all the time. But how do they gain that influence? I've talked to many, many design leaders who've talked about their paths, and I would just I'd l- I love your framing of it, and and would love to hear more about that. Well, you know, I think in some ways designers have shot themselves in the foot because. <laughs> You know, businesses are businesses. They're they're not they're not they're not essentially only a creative endeavor. They're a business endeavor. They have to make money. They have to make profits. And every you know, if I, if you're running, if you're running, have some sympathy for the person running the business. If you know, if you're if you're Debbie and you're the CEO of a big organization, and you ask your marketing department, "What's our return on our marketing dollars?" They can tell you. And if you ask your you know, sales team, what's the, you know, what's the sales funnel look like? What's our close rate? They can tell you. And if you ask your operations team, you know, what's our, what's our quality standard, they can tell you. And then you go to your design team and you say, what's my innovation? What's my innovation metric? And they go, oh, well, we're just creative. You can't put numbers on us. You know, we're just, <laughs> we're just hanging out here brainstorming, man. We'll tell, we'll tell you when we have a good idea. I mean, yeah, it's no way to act in a business. And so designers for a long time haven't been translating their language into the language of business. Mm. A, a classic example, a guy named Roger Martin, who was the, the dean of the uh, Rotman School of Business at the University of Toronto and a big design thinking advocate. I remember I saw him and David Kelly maybe 10 years ago on a panel. And, and, he, and David said, you know, well, we, we like to do stuff that's never been done before. That's what's so exciting. Here's a product that's never been done before. And Roger said... Do you realize what I hear when you say never been done before? <laughs> I hear risk, no market validation, crazy idea. It's like, you know, you're talking, 
you're all excited about something that's just making me terrified. So I one, I think designers, if you want to have influence, you you gotta you gotta get into the business language. And now more than ever, it's easy to do. McKinsey just completed a huge study and created what they call the McKinsey Design Index. You know, and McKinsey's a respected business and analytics kind of consulting firm, probably the you know, the top in their in their their field. And they've demonstrated that companies that that are high in this particular metric that they've invented outperform other companies by two or three times. Their mm-hmm. return on investment is two or three times other companies. So design-leading companies have a 3x return on investment. IBM, which has just completed probably the biggest transition from a technology company to a design company I've ever seen, driven by a really brilliant guy named Phil Gilbert. Um, Forrester Research studied them, and they said, hey, ever since you started doing this design-forward strategy for innovation, you know, you're... 3x your portfolio value, you're half the time to market, and you've reduced risk, you know, by 30% on your new product introductions. So when you can quote those numbers, and they're not stuff you made up, that's McKinsey, that's Forrester, Envision did a huge study, 2,200 companies mm. that they that they supply software to. Yep. And, and we're able to divide the companies into sort of five bins. And the top bin where design is not only used for product development, but it's used for strategy and market development, those companies outperformed other companies, you know, two to one. Yeah. So, you know, you want to have influence in the organization, speak to the people with power in the terms they understand, and then bring them into your process. You know, uh, we, we did a thing in the book on power and politics. This is, you know, I've, I've, I've coached three people, three person founder teams, you know, three students get together and start a company and they launch it and they raise some money and they want, they want me to be an advisor. I'm an advisor. There's more politics between the three of them than there was ever, you know, in my organization at Apple. So politics are always that whenever people get together, there's who's got the authority to make a decision, who's got the influence on that authority and how does the decision actually get made? And when you break it down and we've got a little model of, you know, who's got influence, who's got authority, and you put it in a little two by two, you realize just because you have authority doesn't mean you have, you're strategic. I mean, the head of facilities has a lot of authority. He decides where the cubes go and where the millions of dollars of um, uh, capital expense goes, but he's got no strategic position in, in the organization, he or she. So you, you get authority by providing value. The value you provide has to have, you know, two things. It's got to be aligned with the company's objective Mm. and you have to be recognized for it. You know, so if, if, if you're doing stuff and nobody knows about it or you're doing stuff and you're not putting it in a language that the business people who are, you know, running the ship can understand, then you're not going to get invited to the, to the, to the C-suite for the strategic discussion. You're always going to be down in the, you know, okay, well, after we figured out what we want to do, can you guys make it look good? And, and that's the lowest, you know, value that design brings. I think when, de- when design is thinking about the why, the big need, you know, the, the white space on the, on the map that hasn't been explored yet. And when, and when you can provide that kind of information in the language that's understandable by others, not just by designers. And you're willing to be measured because you should be measured, right? You can't just pump, you know, I think there's, a, there's another piece of research. Um, one of the big research companies, does, they, they research CEOs every year. And they ask them, what do you think about your investment in innovation? And 50% of the CEOs say, I have no idea, you know, what I get back from them. We pump, pump billions of dollars into our innovation teams every year. Just like big pharma companies. And we have no idea what we're getting back, what the return is. When you're in that situation, you're not going to have influence. You're certainly not going to get the power to make decisions because you just look like you're out of control. You don't look professional. So if designers can just, you know, look at the McKinsey thing, it's really interesting because they they took what they call design activities or design moves. uh, And they got way, way into it. You know, they got 300 or 400 of these things. And they've created this really interesting way to think about what is what actually happens inside a company that's design centered Hmm. and how do you measure it? And, you know, they looked at over a hundred thousand design actions in 300 companies and over 2 million pieces of financial data. I'm just reading off their report here. 
Uh-huh. That's pretty valid. And it's validating that the designers really matter. And when you can bring that kind of a conversation to the table, you're going to get invited you know, to the meeting where people are making big decisions. As, as David Kelly says, we're, get, we're getting invited to, you know, we used to be on the kids' table, but we're getting invited to the grown-ups' table right. recently. And I think, I think it's really true. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, it's, not, it's not a matter of not talking like a designer. It's a matter of framing what we do in terms that have business value, which should always be our objective, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Years and years ago, when uh, when we uh, ran an agency, that was the way in to the sort of, you know, the, the management consulting level of user experience work we wanted to do. We wanted to be able to talk right. to, the, to the leaders of the organization to make fundamental change in their companies. And we realized, like, even to just sell a project, we had to frame it as business value. We had to be able to say to them, like, look, you're asking me for usability, but what you really want is you know, to reduce the risk from this project. The project is costing you this much. Uh, we can do it for a tenth of that. You know, that's sort of like being able to, to lay out a financial equation for why the work would be important. So um, I think you're spot on there. And I will put a link to this uh, McKinsey report and the yeah. uh, Envision report in the, in the show notes so people can t- check that out. It's great stuff in there. And, you know, I mean, a lot of this is pretty recent. You know, the D-School started in 2006. It got, you know, kind of popularized the notion of design thinking. But, you know, human-centered design been around a long time. But really, it was around the end of the 90s and 2000s when people had already, you know, they did lean. They did, uh, they outsourced. They did uh, total quality management and Six Sigma. Mm-hmm. And everybody, you know, who was competing on being faster, better, you know, uh, leaner, everybody was now faster, better, leaner. And then they realized, oh, crap, we better come up with some new ideas. Because <laughs> the value, you know, like. There's value capture, which is how do you get better at what you're doing, and then there's value creation, and they, and, and they had underinvested in that, and so there was this confluence of you know industry was realizing we need to get more innovative. It's a global world. If we don't have better ideas, we're not going to get there. They looked around at who was doing that well. Apple, Procter and Gamble had just done a, re- a complete reinvention of themselves with IDEO. Um, uh, Harley Davidson, you know some of the, the the brands that were capturing massive value. For their design and everybody said okay how do i get more design and that's what you know that's what started this whole effort and then and then designers starting to realize we need to we need to we need to get to the strategy level of this conversation if we're gonna if we're gonna really move the needle yeah yeah that's great we're just about out of time but you've mentioned a couple of times uh as you've been describing your work that you uh that you coach some of your students as they go on into their careers and things like that. Um, uh-huh. I, I just I wanted to just point out the the value of coaching, of having a coach. Uh, I've been working with somebody for years, that it's, and that relationship is just so valuable to me, even if it's just an hour a week to step back and um, and have her poke me at like, tell me about the myths you made up this week about your work, you know, <laughs> and let's, let's reframe all of this now, you know, and it's yeah, just, right, right. It, even though, again, I mean, a little bit like at the beginning of our conversation, when I was talking about your book as a slap in the face as a like, oh God, I should know all of this. That to me, uh, at least at this point in my career is where I'm finding so much value in coaching. It's a little bit less of like, you know, let's talk about your career growth or, or or things like that, and much more about can we step back and reframe the things you're struggling with right now? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I was I was an athlete in high school. I I couldn't sustain it in college. Everybody was better than me, and just staying in college was hard enough. Um, but um, anyone's ever been an athlete, you know, you cannot achieve superior performance without a coach. Not just that the coach might know, and I was a gymnast, and the coach might know how to do something that I didn't know how to do. But it was that. It, but it's really about motivation. It's really about you know making sure you're paying attention to the right things. Um, it's you know the coach has the has the uh, the advantage of not being embedded in your in your personal story, and the coach has the advantage of seeing a hundred other people, not just like you, but other hundred other people who are struggling in the same way. And if they have a model, we, we actually certify coaches on the designing your life model. Um, if they have a model to help you, you know, then it's just like, okay, here's a little exercise. Wow, that really revealed something. I wouldn't have done that myself. So I think, you know, and, and a good coach, you know, is basically just holding up a mirror, right? And saying, do you see what you see? Now he's going to change, he or she's going to change that mirror to show you different aspects of something that they notice that you might not have, you know, noticed. 
and that they think that if you could put more emphasis on that, you know, you might achieve your goals. But really, a great coach is just trying to help you get where you want to go, not where they want to go. Yeah, yeah. And it's encouraging to see that more and more companies are are providing some level of coaching, uh, external coaching, even as a as a benefit, you know, to the yeah, to the job. Yeah, it's, so. it's, I mean, it used to it used to just happen with you know executives. You could yeah. you know, uh, D- Dave Evans is an executive is often hired as an executive coach because he's really good at calling people on you know on stuff um, and helping them you know helping them improve. But uh, I think it's I think it's more than just executives now. I think it's a really valuable way to you know if, if people want to grow and develop their their job career and calling having a little bit of guidance and and a little bit of you know a third party just sort of looking in and saying huh why are you doing that uh-huh. you know what what's up with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do you do you notice that every time you go to these meetings and you come back really frustrated it's because you couldn't get your point across and i i can't believe that everybody's stupid maybe we should work on your communication style. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do you notice a pattern here that in every meeting, you know, people don't understand you. Yeah. So it's just, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's a valuable, it's a, it's a valuable tool. If you can, if you can have one. For sure. Bill, thanks so much for being on your, on the show. This is just a fantastic conversation. Designing your work life is the name of the book. Uh, I'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes. so People can get a copy of that. Where else uh, should we send them? Well, you know, I mean, all of our all of our stuff and, and and stuff we've just recently written on Black Lives Matter and and how do you how do you imagine designing your life in, a, in an unfair world? It's all on our website and it's just designing your dot life. So dot life is the dot com part of the address. So designing your dot life. There's David my blog. There's other other you know things that we've written and stuff that's uh-huh. um, it's where you can find all our coaches who are certified on our our method. And, and just kind of where, where we put all our stuff. There's also a Facebook group, uh, Designing Your Life, the book uh, on Facebook. And that's where lots of people form little book clubs. And mm. we call them design teams. And they do the books together, oh, which is really cool because it's fun to have some, you know, some, some friends doing it with you. Um, so on Facebook or on the web. Fantastic. Uh, cool. I'll put links to that uh, in the show notes as well. Um, Bill, thanks so much for your time. Jeff, it's been really fun. I really appreciate uh, appreciate the opportunity. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.